In Acts chapter 11, there's just this amazing, profound event that's, that occurs. But before we get there, we need to take a journey from Acts chapter 1, as we understand the story as it ends us up in Acts chapter 11. And if you know something about Acts, the book of Acts, you know that in chapter 1, we have this verse that's really our theme verse for Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in chapter 2, we start seeing this take place. We have the day of Pentecost, and some amazing things happen on the day of Pentecost. Look for me in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. I think the verses will appear on the screen sometime. And we'll see Acts chapter 2, verse 5. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. He said, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And here are people from the ends of the earth, from every nation under heaven, Jews that are coming. And then it also says in verse 11, we hear them speaking Magnificent acts of God in our own languages. Isn't that amazing? Already in chapter 2, the word of God and the gospel is going out into the languages of the earth, which, by the way, that is still true today. If you're going to have a call to missions, you have got to learn language. And that's hard because when I was a missionary, English seemed so logical, man. Right? English just makes so much sense. These other languages are crazy. Have you, anyone ever tried to speak Russian? In English, when we say hello, we just say hi. Do you know how you say it in Russian? Zdrastvutye. Who thought of that? <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. The first time we went to the mission field, I tried to buy meat in the meat market. My wife said, it's time for us to eat some meat. And all, I didn't know the names. I had to go moo, moo, and bah, bah, just. And then I had to share the gospel. I had to actually share the gospel, but we have to. We see it already in the book of Acts. They hear in their own languages. In the mission field, we call that your heart language. Aren't you glad someone told you the gospel in your heart language? That you grew up in the language that you would talk to God to, you heard the gospel. Oh, that's so important in missions. So it's happening already in chapter 2, and then we get a guy, uh, Dr. Osborne's friend, Peter, stands up and preaches the first sermon in chapter 2. I wonder how he does. What kind of sermon is this? Would he, would he get entry into our PhD program as a result of this sermon? So he preaches in chapter 2, uh, he stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them. And then when we get to verse 37, we see what happened. It says, when they heard this, they come under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Oh, wouldn't it be amazing if the lost people just came and asked us that? Dr. Bradford, imagine that kind of evangelism, right? We walk down the street and people come, what must we do? What an, what an amazing question. And they answer, repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized. And we see the result of all of this if you look at verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day 
about 3,000 people were added to them. We're only in Acts chapter 2. And look what's happening to Acts 1 verse 8. Um, Dr. Osmond, I think we'd accept him into our PhD program. But that kind of result. 3,000 people were added. This is incredible. The, the gospel is just flowing. And so, so in chapter 3, they heal a lame man and Peter, Peter decides, well, 3,000 the first time. What could happen if I preach again? So in chapter 3, he preaches again. And then we get one of the great realities that you'll discover on the mission field and actually in the normal Christian life in chapter 4. Look how it starts. Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the commanders of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them. Spiritual opposition, spiritual warfare. This is the normal Christian life. If you're going to advance the gospel, you will face opposition. Satan's happy if we just stay in our bubble and we don't share much, but you go and you start to reach people with the gospel, there will be opposition. We had this strange rule on our team on the mission field. We said that if we went six months without feeling opposition, were we actually sharing the gospel? Were we actually getting relaxed and in kind of in neutral? Because why are we not facing opposition? So this is the reality of this battle, if God's calling you to missions, but actually, if God's calling you to the normal Christian life, there will be a battle. We too often think, and sometimes we're guilty in our churches, of making church feel like a cruise ship. And many of us have good coffee and good donuts and very comfortable chairs, so it can feel like a cruise ship. But the reality is, it's a battleship. We're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. We're fighting a war for the sake of the nations. And so we have to think it as, as, as good, nice as we make our church. And I'm thankful for a church with great facilities that I belong to. But we have to understand spiritually, we're on a battleship. Here it is already in chapter 4. There's only two sermons being preached. And look at all this opposition that takes place. But... The great part is we're on a battle, but we win the war. Because look what it says in verse 4. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, uh, no, sorry, that's, that's a previous one. Many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So first sermon, 3,000. Second sermon, 5,000. I think he needs to carry on preaching. This is amazing. Opposition, but yet look, the gospel, the kingdom still goes. You talk to missionaries. We served in a, in a Muslim context. There was a lot of opposition. There were days when we were like, is this worth it? Should we pack up? This is too hard. Oh, but God was doing amazing things. Amazing things. In the place where we were, there are more than 30,000 people who were Muslims who now follow Jesus Christ, over 300 churches. God is working even in the midst of opposition, and we see this already in Acts chapter 4. And we come to this amazing, very profound verse in chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people, and we must be saved by it. This is so so important. 
that we make sure in missions, in our church, in our daily lives, this is right. We face a world today that wants to tell us there are many, many possibilities and even this idea of universalism is creeping in. No, no, no. This verse that they stood by is still relevant for us today so that it will cause problems for us. But we have to stand by the truth of Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And so then in verse 19, Peter and John answered them. These are the people who are opposing them. These religious leaders. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is probably one of my favorite proofs of the resurrection. What can take Peter, who will deny he even knows Christ, won't even admit a relationship with Christ, who's now willing to be arrested and beaten, and stand up in front of authorities and say, we don't care what you say, it matters what God thinks. And we can't stop talking about what we have seen and heard. What an amazing proof of a resurrected Savior, and what conviction by the Holy Spirit Man, this convicts me every day when I think about it. Have I stopped speaking about what he's done in my life? Do I have the same excitement and passion? So we would spur each other on, on the mission field. We would ask each other. We had something called our five plus five. So we would have five names of unbelievers that we were trying to share the gospel with. Neighbors, colleagues, work people, maybe where we did our shopping, and, f- and the names of five believers we were discipling. But the five that we, unbelievers, was to keep us trying to be sharp like this verse so that I could say to my friend David, David, how's your five? And he could ask me how my five is so that we would learn to not stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Oof, there's Holy Spirit conviction here. What about you and I? Have we stopped speaking? We should never stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. And then this awesome thing happens. The believers in, in, in chapter 4 are not just sharing, but they're gathering. They're beginning to gather into this glorious community that is becoming the New Testament church. And so in chapter 4, in verse 32, it says, Now a large group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one said any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. And the apostles were giving testimony with great power to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them. Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the earnings that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person's basic needs." What a beautiful picture of what happens when the gospel flows. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the earth, as it's flowing to these languages and people, they are forming these beautiful communities, these covenant-believing communities, and you see the life that they share together. So great, and we're only in Acts chapter 4, and look at the amazing things that are happening. But opposition comes in two forms. Opposition comes from without, We saw the religious leaders and and the authorities attacking them. But I think Satan's especially good at attacking us from within. Look what happens in chapter 5. The beginning of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And we know the rest of the story. This is tragic what happens. 
inside them. We just read of this beautiful community and, and opposition. Satan has a way of coming inside and actually doing his greatest damage in our own midst. Well, we've all seen some of that, haven't we? We've all experienced some of that. We're all facing currently challenges as a whole convention with some of this. And this is one of Satan's weapons. And you think that this is what he'd do and this would just destroy the work. That right now this beautiful community is going to fall apart. But look what happens at the end of chapter 5. Verse 42. Every day in the temple complex and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, we're on a battleship, but we never lose. The, the opposition's from without, the opposition's from within. But we just keep proclaiming, we keep declaring, we keep building God's kingdom. We do not give up. Here at Southwestern, we will not give up. We will not give up. Satan will oppose us from without and from within. We will not give up. We know what God is doing. And so, again, uh, chapter 6, this an, another beautiful verse, chapter 6, verse 7. So the preaching about God flourished. The number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. And then look what it says. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. What? A large group of priests? Man on the mission field, this is exciting when this happens. Where we lived, there was a, a, a Muslim religious leader called an imam. Now you have mullahs who are like a pastors, as we call them. Imam is sort of a bishop position in Islam. He, this guy came to Christ and he was what's called a gray beard. In Islam, if you have a gray beard, grow a gray beard, you have a lot of authority. Muhammad said that a man should grow a beard long enough to hold it. And so that's what you try and do. And if it's gray, it's especially good. This man was a gray beard. When he came to Christ, he had memorized the Quran. When he came to Christ, he was unstoppable. It got so bad for, for the local people that they placed him under house arrest because he would go into the mosques and just totally disrupt what was happening. And he, they couldn't argue against him because he knew the Quran backwards and forwards. He had such a profound impact because he was a priest in that religion coming to Christ. That's what we see starting to happen here in chapter 6. So amazing. Even priests are coming. Man, Acts 1 verse 8 is happening in an amazing way here. Then we get chapter 7, uh, Stephen. Again, a sign of this great opposition. And the story of Stephen and his modest, martyrdom and his great sermon all through chapter 7. And then... The rise of somebody in chapter 8 called Saul. We'll come back to Saul. But in chapter 8 verse 4, after the great persecution under Stephen, 8 verse 4 says, Those who were scattered went on their way, preaching the message of good news. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Remember Acts verse 1 verse 8? Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria, not many would want to go to Samaria, right? Like if you're born and raised in Texas, you don't want to go to? Uh, I was going to say it, but you did, so. <laughs> you don't want to go to California, okay. 
But Philip, Philip's actually amazing. Philip goes to Samaria and he shares in Samaria. And look what happens, uh, uh, verse 26, uh, verse 25, sorry, of chapter 8. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. Wow, so it's working. It's going to Jerusalem, Judea. It's reached Samaria. Acts 1 verse 8 is really happening. And then you get Philip again in verse 32. So Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning from that scripture. Who's him? This is an Ethiopian. Man, I like Philip. He was, we, honey, we should have called one of our sons Philip. What did we do? Philip is amazing. He's burdened for Samar- the Samaritans, and he's also reaching an Ethiopian. Philip has really got it, Acts 1 verse 8. So amazing that Philip is reaching out. And so the gospel, this Acts 1 verse 8 is really going crazy, and we read this amazing verse in chapter 9 verse 31. Look at chapter 9 verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. Wow, so amazing. Yes, there's been opposition from within and without, but what an incredible verse of what's happening. Acts 1 verse 8, just exploding. This is an amazing church. But something's missing. There's a problem. There's what I would call a disease or a virus that even we have to confront in our own lives every day. Because in chapter 10, it says there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. This is someone from the ends of the earth. And this great preacher who preached and 3,000 got saved his first time and 5,000 got saved his second time, this great leader of the church, he says when he's supposed to go and talk to Cornelius in verse 28 of chapter 10, Peter said, you know it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. In chapter 10, God has to give Peter a vision, a very, very strong picture that Peter, you are supposed to reach all nations, all people groups. Up to now, Peter hadn't been doing it. In fact, up to now, we could argue that when they heard Acts 1 verse 8, they heard it a little differently. That they heard, you will be my witnesses to the Jews in Jerusalem, to the Jews in Judea, to the Jews in Samaria, and to the Jews to the ends of the earth. That's mostly actually what's been happening up to this point, with Philip being an exception. 
Peter has to have this vision. Peter, who walked with Jesus and saw him minister to people from all over, from all nations. Peter, who heard him say in Matthew 28, go to all the nations, all the people groups. Yet up to now, with this incredible church that's growing, having numbers are adding, he has a problem. So in verse 34, then Peter began to speak. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. Peter has this incredible revelation of what Jesus really meant in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. What we are really supposed to do when we build the kingdom. Because you see, if you weren't a Jew, if you were me, so I'm not a Jew, my mom is one-eighth, she could just qualify, I'm one-sixteenth, I'm not a Jew. In fact, I wouldn't even be born. A Jew wouldn't have married a Gentile. If I was there, I'd be watching all this from the sideline. Maybe Philip would have come and talked to me. But the rest of them, I'm unclean. You can't associate with me. I'm unclean. In fact, Peter gets into big trouble. And now we come to chapter 11. Look what happens at the beginning of chapter 11. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had welcomed God's message also. When Peter went up to national, no, not national, sorry. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision argued with him saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them? This is the anti-Great Commission. Jesus said, go to the nations, to the people groups. Peter just went and they are criticizing, the leaders are saying to him, why did you go to Gentiles? Um, I think Jesus told me to do that. What are you doing? You visited, you ate with them. In other words, you treated them with dignity. You were actually willing to give them your time and your conversation, and show them that they're valued and they matter. Do you realize on the mission field how important that is? Most cultures that you go to today that are still unreached, highly value hospitality. You have to invite them into your home, and you have to go into their home. It's very, very important to do this. This is what Peter does. But he has to defend what he does to the leaders. What did they hear when they heard Acts 1 verse 8? The church is growing. The church is strong. The church is amazing. But they have a disease in missions we call ethnocentrism. Actually, it's a virus called ethnocentrism. By ethnocentrism, we mean that my culture and the way I see life is the center of everything. And everybody needs to see things the way I do and value things that the, the way I do. Now, I know in Texas we're not like this, but uh, okay. <laughs> now I'm missing. <laughs> Ethnocentrism. Let me give you an example, an easy example to illustrate it. I think that God gave a recipe from heaven 
for what you do with milk, sorry, milk. And Chick-fil-A got it right at Christmas time when they make a milkshake called mint cookies and cream. Has anyone ever tried one of those? Now, Dr. Knight, I'm not drinking them anymore. I know I'm not allowed to. Uh, uh, so I, I just dream about it. Mint cookies and cream. That's, that's what we should do with milk. Where we were in Central Asia, do you know what they do with milk? First of all, they get it from a horse. Then they let it stand for a couple of days till it ferments. So it turns. And then they give you a whole big glass full to drink. I, just when it gets near my lips, the fumes usually, I start gagging. They say, oh, don't worry, it's wonderful, it's good for you, it'll, it'll clean you out, and that part is true. <laughs> from my perspective, from my worldview, from what I think is good, there's no comparison. Why don't they drink a mint cookies and cream milkshake? Isn't it obvious this is way better than fermented horse's milk. Everybody knows that. Well, we can talk about milk, milk all day, but what about people? What about when it comes to people? People who need the gospel, people who need the Lord, people who we see all around us in Fort Worth, and we have this virus called ethnocentrism where we look at people and we say, if you don't speak and think and do things and eat things and, and value things the way I do, I don't know if I want to spend time with you. You are, we don't use this word, but we're saying to them, you're unclean. This is what was going on here. And this is what, Peter is almost in a law court in chapter 11. He is having to defend. In verse four it says, Peter began to explain to them in an orderly sequence. He is giving testimony of why he went to a Gentile. So we get then to what I think is one of the most profound messages in the book of Acts. Verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, So God has granted repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. What that was hope for me. I come from South Africa. That's a long way from Israel. From because of this verse, all of a sudden the church thinks about me. If you come from South America, the church thinks about you. Actually, in Texas, we're probably close to the other side of the world from where they were, and they thought about us. Finally, the church. It took till Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Remember, this is a growing church. This is not a church that's dying or stagnating. They're growing. The Lord's adding thousands. They're doing amazing things. They just have this, this disease. And it takes Peter... And the Holy Spirit convicting them so that in chapter 18, they recognize this disease and they say, okay, we have to change. This is for everyone. And actually, if we carried on reading from now, you would see 
that the gospel begins to break out amongst the Gentiles. All of a sudden, Gentiles, in fact, the rest of the book of Acts, you could even call it Gentile focus now. And that guy who started to come on the scene earlier on called Saul and his conversion experience becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Actually, the Jew who was the most Jew of any Jew you could describe, God works something in his heart and to remove this disease of ethnocentrism. And Paul says, I'm called to the Gentiles. And we see amazing things happening right after this, this profound verse. So it made me reflect on us. Our churches, we have growing, exciting churches that have just wonderful programs, adding people to their numbers, doing great things. But before Acts chapter 11, and actually not just churches, it's you and I, the church is us. And so we have a lot of us doing great things, but we live before Acts chapter 11. We've not reached Acts 11 verse 18. This is the incredible thing about being here at Southwestern. One of our core values is to be globally engaged. Globally engaged. We will not let go of the world here. We have programs now in multiple languages. Do you know we have partnerships with Bible schools, active partnerships with Bible schools around the world, more than 100. More than 100 active partnerships. In fact, praise the Lord, where, where I served, we have one. Because we, as a seminary, will not live before Acts chapter 11. We've reached this point. But what about you? What about your churches? Your church may be growing and exciting and vibrant, but have you ever reached Acts 11 verse 18? Where your church says, so God has granted repentance resulting in life even to Muslims. Hindus, Buddhists, animists, atheists, communists, all these people around the world. Has your church reached that point? Have you reached that point? See, we have a problem. We have Missions Week 2. It's wonderful. But now we're so easily going to check a box. Okay, we did Missions Week. Now we'll put that aside and wait till we get to that next fall again. And so you stay living before Acts chapter 11. We're desperate for people who will live beyond Acts chapter 11 and verse 18 that will join Paul and the others in the rest of the book of Acts. They didn't stop reaching the Jews. They didn't stop having a burden for their own people. They still reached Jews, but now all of a sudden everyone's included. And they start to deal with this disease of ethnocentrism. I know I still have a problem with that. I know every day that's a challenge in my life to wish everybody thought like I did and valued what I value. That's a constant challenge in my life and will be in our churches as well. But we have to fall on our faces and allow God to do this surgery that he did in this church. Because there are still, our International Mission Board tells us, there are still 7,000 unreached people groups. 7,000 unreached people groups. They have their own heart language, their own culture, their own worldview, their own values. They're waiting. 
7,000. We've had the Great Commission for 2,000 years. How is it possible there are still 7,000 unreached people groups? Something's not right. But man, boy, do we have the opportunity in this generation. We've never had the technology and the opportunity like we have today. It is amazing. There is a very close country, I can't name right now, where it's very hard. In fact, our people have only just started getting back in there. One of the highest persecution countries in the world. And one of the main tools for evangelism is Facebook. Because they create these Facebook groups and these guys join anonymously just to talk. And then once they start to get familiar and comfortable, they then arrange to have one-on-one actual face-to-face meetings out of that. And they're seeing people come to Christ and, and secret communities being formed. Through Facebook, we have so much opportunity today if we'll just live beyond Acts chapter 11. Recognize, like I do every day, recognize this disease that so easily through, through the flesh and through Satan's influence comes and says, it's all about me and my culture. Everyone should think my way. Everyone should do and believe what I do. They should have my values. That disease of ethnocentrism. Recognize it and constantly ask God to deal with that in your heart and in your church. We're committed to that at Southwestern. And in the first school, we are driving that. That we will be a seminary that lives beyond Acts 11 verse 18. And we will touch the world. Will you join us? Will you make sure the day that you graduate and take that diploma, that you take it and see it as an immunization, (laughs) get your shot against ethnocentrism. And let's reach a world for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for Acts chapter 11. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who came down upon these leaders and used Peter's testimony and convicted them so that they understood your heart for the world and that your your great commission was truly for all people. Father, deal with my heart where every day I'm ethnocentric. Forgive me for that and do the surgery that you need to through your word and your spirit and your community. Do that for all of us, Lord, with with all our hearts of Southwestern. We're committed to this way. But we need your constant conviction and we need your help to do this for we are so prone to only think of ourselves. I pray, Lord, for anybody here today who is feeling that conviction and understanding that call that they too will see it unacceptable that there's still 7,000 unreached people groups, that today they will commit to making a difference. Would you speak to them and convict them to take active steps to go to the nations? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.